Thank you for getting up early for us and joining us in this way as we open the scriptures and explore the next passage in the queue for us in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 30, so I'm excited to dive in. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the elders here at our Edmonds Expression of the Hallows Church. Now, I know some of you may have seen the movie uh, called Talladega Nights, uh, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Now, I can't exactly say I would recommend this movie, but it does have some very funny parts. Now, in this movie, you have a guy named Ricky Bobby. <clears throat> He's played by the comedian Will Ferrell. And Ricky Bobby is a professional race car driver. And at one point in the movie, uh, Ricky Bobby crashes his car during one of his races, and his car catches on, on fire. And what happens is you see him scrambling to get out of the car as fast as he can. And then once he gets out, he begins frantically kind of running around the track. He's, he's crying out for help because he thinks he's on fire. And so you have Ricky Bobby thinking he's about to die, crying out for someone to save him in his moment of need. And what's so interesting about this, at least to me, is who Ricky Bobby cries out to in, in this moment. First, you see, he cries out to Jesus. He says, help me, Jesus. And, you know, a lot of people do that. I know I have. But then what he cries out to next, he cries out, help me, Jewish God. And then he cries out, help me, Allah, which, of course, is the uh, God of Islam. But he doesn't stop there either. He yells out, help me, Tom Cruise. He says, use your witchcraft and get this fire off of me. And finally, he cries out to Oprah. He says, help me, Oprah Winfrey. In other words, when it comes to the question of who, who truly has the power to save you in your, in your time of need, who's to say for sure? Who's to know for sure? Right? Maybe one can. Maybe, maybe they all can. And maybe it's best to just kind of hedge your bets like Ricky Bobby did and, and to cry out to all of them at the same time. The theology of Ricky Bobby is called religious pluralism. And its basic premise is that all religions are, are basically the same. All world religions are just different pathways to God. And this means that no, no one religion is more true or more valid than any other. And so you can... You can believe whichever one you want, or you can believe in all of them at the very same time. Religious pluralism says that good people of, of all faiths can be accepted by God, which always prompts me to ask, what about us bad people? Because I think you just left me out. There are many prominent voices around us in our culture and in our world who... Uh, share Ricky Bobby's beliefs. The director of the Star Wars series, uh, George Lucas, said this. He said, I remember when I was 10 years old, I asked my mother, if there's only one God, why are there so many religions? I've been pondering that question ever since, he says, and the conclusion I've come to is that all religions are true. Mahatma Gandhi, who believes in or believed in the, the religion of Hinduism, he nevertheless said it this way. He said, my position is that all great religions are fundamentally equal. And the spiritual giant of our day, Oprah Winfrey, 
teaches her millions of followers. She says one of the biggest mistakes you can make in your life is to believe there's only one way. Actually, she says, there are many diverse paths leading, leading to God. Now, one way that some people think about this is that you have a mountain, right? And at the top of the mountain, you have, you have God. And, and every world religion is just a different, different road leading up to the top of that mountain. That's, that's the image. All roads lead to the same uh, destination. And so all you have to do is hop onto one of those roads and, and work your way up, right? Climb your way to the top. Many different roads leading to heaven. It's actually a pretty appealing idea, isn't it? It's very affirming. It's very inclusive. It would simplify a lot of things for us as Christians, really. But there's a small problem with that view. That view actually fails to take seriously the, res- the, the teachings of those respective religions. Because because they can't simply all be true based on the very things that they teach. They are logically inconsistent in that way. Nevertheless, many professing Christians actually hold this view too. In a Pew Research poll conducted just a couple years back, 60% of self-identified Christians agreed that other religions also lead to heaven. 60%. I don't know how that happens. The only way that happens is if those people either don't read the Bible or they, or they don't take it seriously. Because what we're going to see here this morning is Jesus uh, dismantling this image of a mountain with many, many roads. We're going to see Jesus, Jesus on a, a collision course, really, with uh, religious pluralism, with uh, universalism, and with, with any other ism that that suggests there are many roads leading to God. Jesus says there are not many roads, there are not many ways. He says there is one way, and he says, I am. I am that way in John chapter 14, verse 6. And he goes on in the next breath and says, nobody, nobody gets to God except through me. Nobody, that's his words. And a lot of people don't like those words. Sounds very narrow. And for similar reasons, a lot of people don't like what we're going to be hearing Jesus say this morning either. No matter how much I'd like to soften or sweeten today's passage, I can't really do that. Not if we're going to take the words of Jesus seriously, which which we do. And so let's buckle up and let's, let's jump right in. Four things I'd like to show you in this passage to... Uh, First, you see an an inquiry, you see an invitation, you see an urgency, and you see an opportunity. First, an inquiry in the opening couple of verses of this this passage. Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 23. He went through, he being Jesus, went through one town and village after another, teaching and making his way to, to Jerusalem. Lord, someone asked him. Are only a few people going to be saved? And so Luke tells us Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, and he does this intentionally. It's, it's meant really to remind us that, that we are quite late in the public ministry of Jesus. Jesus at this point is moving very deliberately toward the cross. 
And along the way, for nearly three years now, Jesus has been talking a lot about the kingdom of God, right? He's been teaching about the kingdom of God, about salvation. He's been uh, really inviting people in. And some people have been, have been taking him up on his offer, but, but not very many, actually. He was drawing massive crowds who wanted to see him do miraculous things, and he was. And yet, not very many within those crowds were actually committing to, to following him. And that was causing some confusion and some, some questions. If Jesus was who he said he was, if, he's the, if he was the Savior and the Messiah who God said he would send to the Jewish people, why weren't more people getting on board and, and rallying around Jesus? One of the main reasons, I think, was that Jesus, he wasn't really the type of Savior the Jewish people were, were looking for or wanted and the same very much applies today for many. You see, there was an expectation on the part of the Jewish religious leaders and the Jewish people too that when this promised Messiah came, he would come to save the whole nation of, of Israel. All of the Jewish people would be blessed and saved. That's what, they, that's what they expected. They based that on some Old Testament verses that they were, they were misinterpreting. But Jesus wasn't teaching anything, anything like that, as we're about to see. And so, so one of the arguments for why Jesus couldn't be the promised Messiah was that Israel wasn't really rallying around him and his, and his teachings. Instead, you have Jesus three years in with a pretty meager following of mostly uneducated nobodies. Meanwhile, the religious elite, they were uh, outright rejecting Jesus and trying to get others to, to do so too. And so things weren't really adding up all that well in the minds of some of the few who were following Jesus. And this, I think, is why one of his followers in verse uh, 22 asked that question. Lord, are only a few going to be saved? Are only a few going to enter the kingdom of God? It may seem like an unusual question at first, but, but it's not really. Not when you consider how things have been, have been playing out. Because at this point, few were actually following Jesus, amazingly enough. And so, so someone asked the question, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? And Jesus, in the next several verses, doesn't really give an answer to the question. Not directly. Rather, Jesus gives an invitation instead. Look at verse 24. He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Ricky, Bobby, and others say that the way to get to God is like an interstate highway system with many available on-ramps and, and interchanges that will, that will get you where you need to be. Jesus presents us with a very different image, a door, a door that is, is narrow. And that word narrow in verse 24, it's an interesting word. The old King James Version of the Bible translates that word not as narrow, but as, as straight, S-T-R-A-I-T. Take a look at the King James Version of verse 24. Strive, it says strive, make every effort to enter the straight gate. That word's not really used that much anymore, straight, right? But one way it is still used is in the word straitjacket, right? This word narrow in verse 24 really gives the sense of, of being confined, of being being squeezed or squashed. 
If you step on a bug, what does it, what does it die of? In a sense, it dies of, of narrowness. Your, your physical being needs a certain amount of, of spaciousness or, or you can't breathe, you can't live. I remember many years ago a story about a little girl in Texas. Her name was Jessica McClure. She was a, a little girl, 18 months old. And she fell into a hole in the ground. It was a well. And it was not a very wide hole. It was less than 12 inches in diameter. But it was a, it was a deep hole, a deep well. And this little girl fell down inside of it, and she kept on going 22 feet down before she became stuck. How awful is that? The rescue efforts went on for 56 hours until they finally, they finally got her out. They, they saved her. But if they hadn't rescued her, she would have died. She would have died of, of narrowness and, and confinement. Narrow is, is not a word we like for many reasons. It has many negative connotations. The last thing we want to be called is, is narrow, really. And yet this is the word that Jesus uses to tell us something about entering the kingdom of God. He says, I am the way, but I'm a, I'm a narrow way, a narrow door. There's a certain sense of narrowness in, in, in coming into my kingdom, he says. Jesus talks about this very same thing over in the Gospel of Matthew. He uses the very same imagery of a, of a narrow door or a narrow gate. And he kind of expands the image in an interesting way there. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, let's take a look. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it, he says. So there is a broad road, a broad way that people can take too. Broad sounds spacious, right? It sounds inclusive. It's a, it's a positive word, generally speaking, including in the Bible. But Jesus doesn't use it in a positive way, not here. He says the broad way, it leads to something. It leads to destruction. And he says many are on it. While the narrow way, he says, leads to life. And few find it. And so it's very interesting that Jesus would use a, such a negative word for the right way and such a positive word for, for the wrong way. He seems to be suggesting that the broad way, while it may look spacious and inclusive, especially to the world around us, it will ultimately lead you into a narrowness that will ultimately become suffocating and, and deadly. And the narrow way of Jesus, while it may look very confining from the outside, it will ultimately lead you into to spaciousness and, and freedom. Look at what else Jesus says in verse 24. He says this narrow door I'm talking about, he says it's so narrow, he says you need to make every effort to get through it. In many translations, like the King James Version, it says you need to strive. You need to strive to get through that door. Now, I thought it was easy to become a Christian. This doesn't sound so easy. In fact, get this, the Greek word for strive there, it's the word agnizomai. And we get our word agonize from it. That's a pretty strong word. 
someone who is agonizing and is, is in an intense struggle of some sort. The word means to agonize, to struggle. It also means to fight. In fact, almost everywhere you find it in the New Testament, on four or five different occasions, the word is translated fight, to engage in a, a battle or, or a fight. And so as we think about these words coming out of the mouth of Jesus, he seems to be saying that in order to be saved, in order to enter the kingdom of God, requires getting through a door that's so narrow, you have to, you have to fight your way in. That's interesting imagery. You have to agonize and contend your way through a very narrow opening in order to be saved by, by Jesus. And so does any of this sound confusing or, or concerning to any of you? I thought it was easy to become a Christian. I thought salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Not by me striving and struggling and, and fighting my way in. And so what is this about? Usually when I've heard invitations to respond to the gospel, they say, come on, come on down front here and pray, pray this prayer with me. Say these words. Invite, invite Jesus into, into your heart and you're all good. Uh, done deal. I don't hear many people saying you need to agonize and fight your way in to become a Christian, except for uh, Jesus here. His invitation here is very different than, than what I've heard. He says, you want to be saved? He says, then the fight is on. The battle over your soul has, has begun. So what in the world is this fight that Jesus is talking about? Here's what I think Jesus is talking about. He, he, he's saying, if you truly want to be my follower, if you want to enter through the narrow gate, there's a fundamental battle within yourself that needs to take place. And this particular battle is, is very unique. Usually when you're in a battle, the objective is, is to win, right? But, but not here, not, not here. If you want to get through this narrow door, if you want to truly follow Jesus, there are some fundamental battles within yourself that you actually need to lose. And we only have to go back a few chapters here in the Gospel of Luke to, to see this pretty clearly. In Luke chapter 9, you may recall Jesus was talking uh, there about what it, what it looks like to, to follow him and how a person can be saved. And he said, he said it requires losing. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Then he said to all of them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will, will save it. And so if you want to enter through this narrow door into the kingdom of God, apparently you need to lose some things. You need to lose yourself. You need to uh, deny yourself. You need to submit and surrender yourself to Jesus. I think this is one of the reasons why in the final verse of today's passage, verse 30, Jesus says, note this, he says, those who are last will be first, and those who are first will be last. That's how the kingdom works. And so you see with the gospel, it, it's those who lose, it's, it's the losers who actually win, and it's the winners or those who, who think they're winners who, who actually lose. Salvation only comes to, 
to losers, to those who are willing to surrender the battle, to, to wave the white flag, to submit and surrender their lives, who pound their chest and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I will. I will be merciful. He says, come on in. And so that's the battle. It's the defeat of the self. And it is a glorious defeat once you get there. It's a battle of admitting that you're wrong. And Jesus is right. It's the battle of reaching the point of genuine repentance and faith in Jesus. This is the narrow way in. And because it's so narrow, Jesus says few actually find it. Okay, we talked about the inquiry. We talked about the invitation. Then in verses 24 to 28, we see there's a, a serious sense of urgency here when it comes to this invitation. Beginning in verse 24, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because I tell you, many will try to enter and won't be able once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door. Then you will stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up for us. He will answer you, I don't know you or where you're from. Then you will say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know you or where you're from. Get away from me, all you evil doers. These are challenging um, and chilling words coming from the mouth of Jesus. These words are intended to, to get our attention. Jesus says many will try to enter the kingdom but won't be able to. Why? Because the door will be shut and it will be too late, he says. And who is it that decides when the door is open and when the door is shut? He says unequivocally, I do. Not only that, he says many people will be standing outside knocking, saying, hey, it's us, open up. But the door doesn't open. There will be many people who feel they've been cheated or forgotten. They say, Lord, Lord, we hung out, we were there with you, you know us. And Jesus says, no, I don't. I, I, don't, I don't know you. Chilling. These people on the outside, they assumed that they would be on the inside. They assumed they were already on the inside. Now, it's very important to acknowledge something here. Jesus is directing these words toward a particular group of people. He has the religious Jewish, Jewish religious leaders and the Jewish people in view. That's who he's, he's targeting here with these words. Now, that doesn't mean he's not coming after us, too, a bit at some level to, to get us to think, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But most of these Jewish leaders and these Jewish people, they assumed they were already in the kingdom of God based on who they were, based on their genealogy, based on uh, the fact that they were God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, right? It's all over the, the Old Testament. But Jesus is making clear that they, they were under a, a damning delusion that the salvation that God would bring would be a sort of national salvation rather than what it actually is, is a personal salvation. And this is why they're so shocked in verse 25 to find the door closed and the door locked. They thought they knew God, they thought they were loving and serving God, and yet God himself, God in the flesh, comes to them 
with an invitation to repent and believe, and they don't like it. They, they shove it back in his face. It wasn't that they didn't want salvation. They didn't want the narrow way. They couldn't believe that that was God's way for them. And so by default, they found themselves on the broad road that, that leads to destruction and wouldn't realize it, apparently, until it was too late. And so this invitation and this urgency, next, they lead to an opportunity, or a couple of different opportunities, really. This passage seems to be saying that even though many people in this world identify with Jesus, that does not mean necessarily that Jesus identifies with them. Even though some of them may call him Lord, they say, Lord, Lord, open up, he says, who are you? I don't know you. I, I never knew you. And so that seems to be the difference in this passage between those who are in and those who are out. Whether you, you know him and whether he knows, he knows you. And so for those of us who consider ourselves Christians, Jesus is inviting us to take this opportunity to really humbly and honestly examine ourselves so as not to be surprised. It is important for us to do this from time to time, that's to be sure. And Jesus is encouraging us to do so here, I think. And so do you know him? How do you know if you, if you know him? Can, can you be sure? The Bible says yes, yes you can, and, and you should, and, and you need to. And Christianity is really the only religion that says you can be sure where you stand with God. Every other religion says you're saved by what you do and how well you do it. Every other religion says it's based on the life you've lived. Were, were you good? Were you good enough? But if that's how it works, how can you ever know where you stand? You can't. You can never know for sure if you're in or you're out until your life is over and the final tally is in. Christianity is utterly unique in this respect. Christianity says you're saved not based on how you have lived. It's based on how someone else has lived, right? How Jesus lived, how he died, how he rose again. Why? So that you can come to, to know him. And do you know the Bible says not only can you know him, it says that you can know that you know him. Even though you see yourself with all your flaws, all your struggles and failings, you can nevertheless have a deep internal certainty, a, a certain assurance that, that you're his. And the Bible teaches we need this. The Apostle John actually helps us in understanding this. He tells us how we can know for sure. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verses, verse, verse 3. John says, this is how we know that we know him. And then for much of the rest of the chapter, chapter 2 of the book of 1 John, John goes on to lay out several practical diagnostic tests for us to consider. And first he says, consider your relationship with Jesus. This word know, to, to know Jesus, it's a strong word. It's much more than, than knowing something in your head. It's not simply to grasp something intellectually. The word in the Greek also gives a very strong sense of not, 
so much knowing something as, as someone, personally, experientially. And I don't want to get weird here, but the word know is the same word that sometimes refers to how a man knows a woman. That's, that's pretty personal. That's pretty intimate. And I don't think this language was used by accident. There's a certain experience of remarkable fellowship that goes along with, with knowing God. Having personal dealings with him, communing and interacting with him in, in real time and in, in real relationship. And part of this internal assurance is also seeing him at work in your life really over time and marveling at the, the mysterious ways that he, he works. Can you, can you see things about yourself and about your life that you know deep down cannot be explained apart from him? The gospel makes this available to us. And so do you have this? Do you know him in these ways, in these personal ways? But then John turns from this internal test to a couple of external tests. First he said, consider your relationship with Jesus. Next he says, consider your relationship with, with others. This is a relational test too, but... It has to do not with your relationship with Jesus, but your relationship with the people around you and, and how well you're loving them, how, how you're loving them, if you're loving them. Down in verse 1, or John chapter 2, verse 7, rather, John begins talking about a new command, a, a new command to love, to, to love people generously and extravagantly like, like Jesus did. And this is an, an observable test, really, right? If you're a person who says, I know God, but you're an unloving person, or you're a harsh or hateful person, or you treat people poorly, John says you're deceiving himself down in that passage. And so this is another way that you can know that you know him, and, and he knows you, and that is, are you growing in, in your love? In your love for God? And in your love for others. And he's talking about love in general, to be sure. We are to love everyone well. But John also says down in that passage that the ways that you and I love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, that is an especially telling test of whether, whether we truly know him. And so how are you loving the people around you in our faith family and, and out in our community? Finally, John says, consider also your, your likeness to Jesus. In verse 6 of chapter 2, he says that another one of the ways that you can know that you know him is that you begin, quote, you begin walking just as Jesus walked. And so are you, are you looking like Jesus? Are you, are you thinking like Jesus? Are you loving like Jesus? Are you, are you walking like Jesus? Not, not perfectly, of course, but but increasingly, John is suggesting here that if you really know Jesus, your character, your behavior, the, the ways you live, the ways you love, will be changing to look more and more like him. And so is that happening? Little by little, little there should be actual observable changes in your behavior and your character that look more and more like Jesus. And so, so is that happening? It is a process, to be sure, and it takes time. This is why the Bible, I think, refers to the, the fruit of the Spirit. You can't really just stare at the fruit in your garden and, 
see it growing, right? It's gradual. And so you need to check in periodically and see how the garden is doing and tend to it accordingly. And so, so are you growing in the image and likeness of, of Jesus? So for those of us who consider ourselves Christian, I think Christians, I think Jesus is encouraging us here to, to take this opportunity this morning to humbly and honestly examine ourselves and the condition of our hearts in, in these sorts of, sorts of ways. On the other hand, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, or if you're not sure if you are or not, Jesus is extending an opportunity here to you this morning to, to respond to his his open invitation, because it won't stay open forever, this passage says quite clearly. And one thing you should know is that th about this narrow door, it's, it's so narrow that you have to come through it one at a time. You have to enter through the narrow door personally and deal with Jesus personally. It's not enough to have gone to church growing up. It's not enough to be part of a certain group or, or family or upbringing, that's what the Jewish people thought. And look how, that, look how that went. But that's not how the gospel works. That's why down in uh, verse 29 of this passage today, Jesus uh, confronts that sort of thinking. He takes a shot at the Jewish people who believed this way. Look at what he says. He says, they, they being the people who have entered by the narrow gate, will come from east and west, from north and south, to share the banquet in the kingdom of God. So they'll be the people coming through the narrow gate won't just be Jewish people coming from Jerusalem. They're going to be coming from the four corners of the earth. And so people of all nations and tongues and tribes can come in. They can come on in and, and join the banquet, join the party. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you, what you haven't done. What matters is what you believe. And whether you're willing to lose those, those key battles, right, whether you're willing to confess that Jesus died in in your place, for your sins. Why? In order to make this limited time opportunity available to you to enter through the narrow door. And friends, even though the door may look narrow coming in, even though Christianity may look narrow and confining from the outside, it's, it's far from narrow on the inside when properly understood. In fact, once you fight your way in, once you come to truly know this Jesus and to, to know that you know him, there's a certain spaciousness on the other side of, of that narrow door as you step into the kingdom of God, as you become a member of the family of God, and as you look forward to enjoying the banquet of God together forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your scriptures and the words of Jesus. Thank you for the ways in which at times they challenge us and confront us and correct us. Thank you that your word is living and active, that, that we not only examine it, but it examines us. Would it do that today? Would we allow it to do that today? Thank you that because of the gospel we can, we can know you and be known by you. Thank you that the Holy Spirit testifies to our very spirit that we are your beloved children. Would we not only know this in our heads, but would we experience it in our hearts as we worship you through song? In Jesus' name, amen.